0: We're not just putting off our own ability to really understand the climate crisis as it's already accelerating around the world because we're sort of sending our trash elsewhere. We don't have to see it. Exactly. We don't have to see it. If we had to see it, fast fashion would
1: go out of fashion overnight. People would be like, I don't want to buy any of that crap that's going to be in my
0: backyard. Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today on the show, we're joined by writer, stylist, and consultant, Aja Barber. If you're active on Twitter, you've probably seen Aja taking on fast fashion, sustainability, intersectional feminism, racism, and most importantly, overconsumption and its effect on the global South. As we see more instances of climate disaster, clothes washing up on shores, and endless stories of labor abuse, the spotlight on retailers like Shein has reached a fever pitch. From TikTok hauls to lead levels in the clothes and the inability to even truly dispose of said clothes. It's a lot. But Aja is here to let us know we still have time to turn things around. Stay tuned. The Designer Event is now on at Bloomingdale's, and you don't want to miss it. Shop the
1: most sought-after handbags, shoes, and ready-to-wear from the top luxury designers, all at incredible savings. This sale only happens for a limited time, online and in-store. So head on over to Bloomingdale's today and shop the Designer Event.
0: There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I Participate in McDonald's for a limited time. After two and a half years in this pandemic, my relationship to clothing changed so much. My relationship to shopping changed so much. And like living in a city like New York where pre-pandemic, we're all social all the time. And also a place where like sidewalk culture is a big thing. So like what people see you wearing, like streetwear, street style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I I was so used to that. But after the pandemic, it changed my relationship to how I wanted to think about shopping and getting myself dressed. Yes. I found your social media and it's been really, really helpful for me. And so I'm really excited that you can be here to talk with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I don't know a single person during the pandemic that didn't look at their wardrobe and go, how do I have this much stuff? Because honestly, I'm supposed to be better. And I had that like, seriously, there were days, oh my goodness, because there were times during the winter for like the last two years where I would just wear the same two outfits for like a solid week. Mm -hmm. And like. Nobody noticed or cared, but even if I wasn't in a pandemic, I probably still could have done that. Like we do not need anywhere near the amount of clothing that we've been told we need. Mm -hmm. Now, of course I have like pretty big wardrobe and some of that has to do with being in the fashion industry now, but I think it's a different thing of buying for joy and, you know, collecting clothes for many years, which is what my wardrobe comes down to. And then this idea that you have to constantly participate and constantly be buying new things in order to participate—I think that's quite a different thing. But I realized for the majority of my life, particularly as an adult having disposable income, I was buying too much. I was.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about that. So you got your start in the fashion and magazine industries, and and you were also like an early fashion blogger in the two thousands. Like those are all industries where it is almost like required, if not explicitly encouraged to be constantly sporting something new, changing up what you're wearing and what you're showing people. What was the turning point that took you from that place to the sustainability work that you do now within the fashion industry?
1: I started in the fashion industry, really wanting to work in the industry earnestly. And then starting to really see some of the problems, I stopped wanting to, and also felt Mm -hmm. like my place in the industry, it reached a logical conclusion, which was I wasn't connected. I didn't have the right parents. So I ended up working in the TV industry Mm. for many years, which I also had a lot to say about, but I always (laughs) cared about fashion. I was blogging because I cared about fashion. And what I find is if you aren't the person who's let in the room, you know, like charlie in the chocolate factory you know how he's like got his nose against the window yeah. as he's watching like the little rich kids sing with like the candy man yeah. that was me with the fashion industry oh. except i was looking out of the window going oh wait a minute this is actually bad like this is bad like no you didn't invite me in but now i see that this is a bad place mm. and i'm gonna talk about that i always say by like not being the a team sometimes you end up like forming your own team, which is necessary and important. Mm. That was my experience with fashion. But as a blogger, I saw the same thing happen that happened in the fashion industry where blogging started as this incredibly earnest place where you had all these people from different walks of life, just sharing their style. Mm -hmm. And then it became really competitive. I began to feel like people who were my blogging peers were not being honest about like, buying clothing and returning it. Mm. And then it became this thing where it just became about celebrating rich kids. If somebody who was independently wealthy and had, per se, a shit ton of Chanel started a blog, they would become famous within a week. And Mm, so once again, it was one of those things where I was just like, fucking rich kids ruin everything, man. And so (laughs) I kind of went off of fashion again, but I still thought, I don't think it's really good that we're all buying that much clothing. Mm -hmm. Like I know that I was buying a lot of clothing and I was doing it because I like clothing, but I also felt like I wanted to participate. And I know that like people that were blogging, you know, were perpetuating something and maybe we aren't all of society, but maybe this is a sign of where society is going. Mm -hmm. Because I really did feel like Everybody was starting to buy a lot of clothing, not just me, but other people. Yeah. I knew people where they would move and they would bag up all of their old clothes that they didn't want anymore and donate it to charity. And we're talking like trash bags full of clothing. Right. Like I never did that. So sometimes I was completely shocked by it. Or like someone I know going on holiday, and they're like, I can't be bothered to do laundry. So I'll just go to Old Navy and buy a bunch of clothing for holiday. What? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't have any underpants. I guess I'll just go buy more underpants for cheap because I'm just not going to do laundry. Just stuff like that, you know? And I was like, hmm. And then I began to understand if everybody's buying a lot of clothing and everybody's donating all this clothing, it has to be going somewhere, right? Yeah. So like one summer I volunteered in a charity shop near my hometown in Reston. Mm -hmm. And every day that I would come into that charity shop, I would see bags and bags and bags of clothing and like mm-hmm. out of all of those bags and they'd be piled up to the ceiling. Sometimes we would take less than 10% of that. So I'm wow. like, Hmm, we are one of thousands of charity shops in the U S if mm-hmm. we are getting this many donations, are we unique or is this something that everybody's doing? And if that's the case, is this an ecological problem? And then, When I learned about Cantamanteau Market and Accra, Ghana, I was like, and there we have it. I knew that this was a bad thing. I knew. I was somebody who in my 20s got a sewing machine and realized that sometimes it took me 10 hours to make a dress that was barely wearable, something that you would never sell to someone because it wasn't good. <laughs> a Gordon
0: Gartrell original, oh, basically. Oh, but i
1: I wear it and it would be like tattered, but I'd be like, I made it. <laughs> and so I started thinking, okay, if it takes me 10 hours plus $30 in fabric to like make something that is Barely wearable. Mm-hmm. How is it that that brand can turn out a much more complicated dress for $10? How is that working? Mm. How is that happening? And so I was always really curious about these topics. And there were always things that made me super uncomfortable about the ways in which the fashion industry operated.
0: I want to talk about how you have like been using your platform and using that bird's eye view and all of your experience that you've gotten over the years throughout all these different aspects of the fashion industry. You basically put all of that together and you released a book. It's more than a book. It's really a call to arms called Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism.
1: Yeah. So Consumed is a call to action for people who are always wondering, what is the deal with the fashion industry? It's like, Here's the deal. If you think that this isn't about race, it is. If you think that it isn't about feminism, Mm. it is. Mm. You know, people go, everything's about race. But what people don't want to acknowledge is that today's modern fashion industry would not exist the way it is without two things, chattel slavery Mm. and colonialism. If we did not have the transatlantic slave trade, we wouldn't have today's fashion industry because what did that do? It kickstarted the industrial revolution, which right. allowed us to make clothing a lot faster. So when we learned about slavery in school, people really do not. And when I say people, I mean teachers who were being negligent in explaining the harshness and the terribleness of slavery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody connects it to the fashion industry. We talk about cotton, like it's this esoteric, fabric, but in <laughs> actuality, what was it making? It was making clothes, sales for ships, that sort of stuff, but clothes overall. And so when people say, oh, it's not about race, it absolutely is. It was built on that foundation. Colonialism in India was all about upheaving the cotton trade in India, which India was a superpower at the time. And the right. British knew that they wanted to mess with that and they did. And so when people say, oh, well, you know, it's not about that. It is. And like Because it has that foundation of exploitation, that's why there's so much exploitation baked into the fashion industry today. It is just a repeated cycle of the foundation of this industry. Mm. When we talk about, oh, well, you know, that's a good job in that country. What that is, is it's colonialism. Mm. It's basically saying that person lives in that country, so they should be expected to do this hard and dangerous job that, that I, I would, would never want to do, do <laughs> right. for pennies. Right. That's
0: what it is. It's colonialism. I want to talk about the climate change yeah, aspect of the fast fashion industry. Mm-hmm. You make it very clear in your book, but for our listeners who have yet to read it, lay out for us just how urgent... Fashion's sustainability crisis is, and yeah. the role that fast fashion plays in our slowly, quickly, quickly worsening yeah. planet.
1: Depending on who you ask, people will say that the fashion industry is responsible for ten percent of carbon emissions. Some people say it's less. Some people say it's more. Ooh. But at the end of the day, this industry is doing some damage. Like <sighs> it's it's doing some damage. Yeah, but. I focus on the overproduction aspect of things because Mm -hmm. I think that's actually really fascinating. And when you get people understanding what that looks like and what overproduction does, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden people are like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to participate in this system anymore. So the best example I get is like, in the future, we're going to be facing water shortages. And we already are. There are people on our planet that do not have clean drinking water. We are very fortunate Mm. to not be those people. There are people in the States that don't have clean drinking water. Hello, Hello. Flint, Michigan. You know, Mm -hmm. so let's not even pretend like that isn't happening. But one thing that we know for sure is that in the future, we're going to be having wars for water. Water Mm. is a precious commodity. And There's not going to be enough of it, especially if this planet continues to heat. So a lot of water goes into cotton farming, a lot of water, depending on who you ask. Sometimes people will say it takes, I think, Hmm. 3,000 liters of water to make a t-shirt to grow the cotton. That's a lot of water. One t-shirt. One t-shirt, because you have to remember... Cotton plants need to be watered, and then you get the little bud, and then you pick it, and then it has to be processed, turned into thread, woven into a t-shirt. So that is a lot of water to make one t-shirt, right? And Mm. once again, that's a stat that people also debate. But at the end of the day, you know that there's a lot of water going into your t-shirt. It's not a
0: glass. It's It's not not a
1: glass. glass. It's not a (laughs) glass. So currently... China is experiencing a record heat wave and rivers in China are drying up. China also produces a lot of cotton. There has been a lot of blood spilled over cotton, whether we are talking the Uyghur Muslims or whether we are talking our people, the African-Americans. So all of these big fast fashion brands, they overproduce everything, everything. Mm -hmm. And they end up burning and incinerating clothing that they don't sell. And Jeez. destroying it. In 2018, H&M reported that they had $4.3 billion worth of unsold stock. Now that's $4.3 billion, not a million. Billion. Mm-hmm. If a million is 12 days, a billion is 31 years, just for scale. So we're talking billions of items. That's a <sighs> lot of clothes. So if it takes 3,000 liters of water for a t-shirt, Gosh. and you have 4.3 billion t-shirts that are unsold how much water went into making all of that stuff that H&M is now going to have to incinerate because they cannot sell it?
0: Is it a river?
1: Is it a lake? So when people don't understand how the fashion industry plays a part here, that is exactly how it plays a part.
0: It's so wild too, you mentioning that because I was thinking like 4.3 billion t-shirts. Well, like a lot of t-shirts are made out of cotton, but a lot of clothes that are made, like the other thing is that the quality of the fabrics and materials that a lot of these fast fashion brands use Mm -hmm. for their clothes is you're not using, they're not using all natural fabrics and fabrics that aren't natural are derived from From fossil fuels,
1: right? Right. Which makes them plastic. So that's my next point. So (sighs) say these 4.3 billion items that get incinerated are plastic, okay? So mm-hmm. one thing we know about polyfibers, so polyester, acrylic, spandex, a lot of workout wear, it's all plastic. It has a lot of different names, but if it's derived from a fossil fuel, it's a plastic item of clothing, essentially. Now, one thing we know about plastics is they leak like microfibers, right. which means that every time you wash that item, there's little fibers that are coming off that go into our water supply and get into our ocean. Yeah, microplastics. Or they get into your food, for instance. You're watering your plants, but they're in the they're in the water. So, let's say that they had that many items of unsold merchandise, which then they landfill. That's all plastic that's going into the landfill. And what do we know about plastic? We don't know how long it takes to decompose. Right. So when you throw away an item that's made from polyfibers, that item is going to be on this planet
0: for longer than you will be. It's so freaky. It makes me think about this report that was released earlier this year about how the U.S. could see a new extreme heat belt, like reaching as far north as Chicago by 2053. As in, if you are listening to this, you will likely still be alive by then. I mean, that news freaked a lot of people out, freaked me out. But something that you've done... In this conversation, something that you do in the book is you zoom out from a focus on the U.S. to see how global this crisis is. Yeah. Specifically how much harder climate change is hitting the global south. So like really lay it out. How much harder is climate change hitting the global south than it is the global north? Cantamonto Market in Accra, they've had record-breaking rain this year, which means that the
1: market hasn't been open. Cantamonto Market is Mm -hmm. arguably one of the world's largest secondhand resellers, and it's all clothing that we donate that gets dumped on the Global South, essentially. 15 million items enter the market every single week. Only 40% of that clothing is going to get sold, which means that the other 60% becomes waste. Wow. And that waste ends up in neighborhoods in Ghana. It ends up on the beach. It pollutes the water. It is an ecological crisis for someone else who has had nothing to do with that problem. Oh my Americans would be so mad if another country decided to dump all this trash on us, and then told us that it was a donation and it was charitable, oh my god! And
0: They'd th- storm any available building with a rifle. <laughs> any, any available okay. building,
1: and it wouldn't even take January sixth to do it. People would be livid, and British people would too. Like the UK prides itself on like its national trust sites and its beaches. Well, not anymore, thanks to the Tories. There's raw sewage on the beach lately. But if all of this clothing ended up being th- like just strewn across one of our prettiest beaches in the UK. People riot in the street. But for some reason, because it's people in the global South, it's okay to do that to their environment. Mm-hmm. And that's a colonialist attitude as well. Thinking that that sweater that you didn't need to buy, that's 100% acrylic and suddenly bobbly, no longer good enough for you, <sighs> that somebody in a warm climate, is going to want that bobbly, broken acrylic sweater that stopped looking good after three wears, essentially. So that's another colonialist attitude that I break down within my book.
0: I want to talk about the colonialist attitudes. By relying on this overproduction, by treating our Mm -hmm. clothes as disposable, yes, and continuing to feed into and drive this demand for yes. clothes that are literally made from and like made from oil and will break down into plastic, right? Mm-hmm. That take all of this water to produce. Yes. Like yes. the global north, specifically the United States and the UK, who mm-hmm. are two of the biggest con- like countries consuming these clothes. Indeed. We're not just putting off our own ability to really understand the, the climate crisis as it's already accelerating around the world because we're sort of sending our trash elsewhere. We don't have to see it. Exactly. We don't have to see it. If we had to see it, fast fashion would
1: go out of fashion overnight. People would be like, I don't want to buy any of that crap that's going to be in my backyard. I've definitely... Had a lot of stuff within my lifetime, but I've been more thoughtful about what I buy. Also, will someone else want this if I decide I don't want it anymore? But have you ever thought about if you had to live with every item you've ever bought in your life, what that would look like? Scary thought. Right. It gives me like hives. Yeah. Um, that's what I also think about when I think about buying something in the store that I might not need. Like, right.
0: Because it, eventually it's going to, it has to go somewhere. Like the planet is not this uh, like vast, unending resource. It has yeah. to end up somewhere. But it will end up in someone else's backyard. And another yeah. thing that makes this a race issue the
1: work of Dr. Robert Bullard, who is the father of the environmental justice movement, mm. basically proved that the US loves to put Landfills in black neighborhoods. So, mm-hmm. what I want people to understand, particularly my black people, this system is killing us first. It's obviously hurting and harming people in Asia, mm-hmm. but it's hurting us as well. Buying something that is manufactured in not great places, that's not going to last you a long time, that you're not mm-hmm. going to like it a year, that's going to end up either in a landfill in another black person's backyard. Or Mm. it's going to end up in the beach in Ghana, which is my ancestral home. And probably a lot of Black people who's listening to this ancestral home as well. So like you need to understand that like this is about us because at the end of the day, we're always the ones that get the shaft first. You are absolutely right about that.
0: The Designer Event is now on at Bloomingdale's,
1: and you don't want to miss it. Shop the most sought-after handbags, shoes, and ready-to-wear from the top luxury designers, all at incredible savings. This sale only happens for a limited time, online and in-store. So head on over to Bloomingdale's today and shop the Designer Event. There
0: are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. We're discussing how the trash and how sort of the waste, the disposable clothing that's generated from this industry ends up going somewhere where it's for many people, quote unquote, out of sight, out of mind, the production happens in the same way. Like in addition to the climate crisis affecting the global South that many of us don't Really see like that, see up close every day. The We're fashion about to
1: see it up close and personal real soon. Like I think that's going to catch
0: up with us really quickly. I mean, I think like these heat waves these heat waves. Mm-hmm. We keep calling them heat waves, which is like yeah. But the fast fashion industry has so many issues with labor abuses, and the people who are being yes abused are of the global south, from Asia, South America. the Middle East, um, Eastern Europe, Africa. They have their
1: eye on Africa, like
0: Ethiopia is being scouted.
1: So what the fashion industry does is, and I've seen this happen so much in my lifetime, finds a place outside of the US, outside of the UK, where you can abuse people. So you go to China and then you've got people working, making 15 cents an hour doing sweatshop labor. But Mm. then They want to organize and you go, oh crap, we can't let them organize. So then you move everything to Vietnam. So Mm. then they get the same, we need to organize. And then you go, crap. And then you go to Bangladesh and it just gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the minute people start to get really like fed up with the system, it finds another place. And currently they have their eye on Ethiopia.
0: Gosh. The other thing I think about is like, you know, you talk about like, um, people wanting to organize. And then suddenly it's like, let's pick up our business and go and go elsewhere. In addition to like wage theft, people being severely underpaid, working in dangerous environments.
1: People being beat in the streets for like wanting to protest their employer. Right.
0: Right. Uh, And factories burning down. Factories collapsing
1: and killing thousands of people, Rana Plaza 2013. Gosh.
0: In addition to all of those things, I also can't help but think about that recent story about how scientists discovered that some items of Shein clothing contained as much as 20 times the amount of lead that the Canadian authorities have deemed safe for clothing. And some of, these, some of these items of clothing were children's clothes. Like that's an issue for the wearer, of course, but what about the people who are being exposed to that lead in those factories every day? Exactly. And there was also a recent one on
1: TikTok where a woman had bought like nail polish from Shein, gold flakes. And when she put them on her nails, it like changed the color of her hands. And like she was having problems with her hands. Like after the lead story came out, you know, I said, I I worry about it because they sell a lot of beauty products. They sell things like bath bombs and whatnot. And there was no Mm. ingredient list at all on the website. None. Wow, They'll say wow. like fragrance and essential oils, but like, I think it takes more than that to make a bath bomb. And like, yeah. if I can't get an ingredient breakdown list, then like,
0: you shouldn't be putting that anywhere
1: near your, your, your parts basically.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and kind of a throwback to your earlier point, if they don't care about the people who are making these things. Exactly. Exactly. Why would they care about you? Exactly. That's it. A lot of people are somewhat aware, right, mm-hmm. of these things, at the very least, somewhat aware of these things. But they say that shopping fast fashion brands for them is about fighting quote unquote affordable clothes. What do you think about that term, affordable?
1: I think affordable depends on who you ask, but I also think the majority of the world can't afford to participate in this system, right? We mm. have to acknowledge that it is a luxury to be able to buy trendy clothes to be on trend. Like that's it. Mm. The majority of the people who make your clothing cannot afford to buy the clothing because of the wage theft and exploitation. They do not get to participate in buying and wearing trendy clothes. We do. I think people have a hard time separating needs from wants in this conversation. And we got to get better at it because all we're doing is lying to ourselves and speeding up the climate crisis coming to get us all and making a bunch of assholes richer who shouldn't be rich. (laughs) There are a lot of billionaires at the top of the system. And the family that owns H&M, five billionaires in that family, five. Five separate. Uh, Billionaires. But yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Five separate billionaires in okay. the family. Uh, the Waltons, who own Walmart, richest family in America. And Sam's Club, right? The guy that owns Zara, at one point in time, he was the richest man in the world. His daughter is also a billionaire. And when people say that fast fashion exists because of poor people, you need to understand every one of us is buying fast fashion. Mm. And every one of us, most of us have participated within these systems, and we are not all poor. But additionally... Poor people can't make a billionaire. When you look at the wealth that people that are mm. working class and working poor have in America, right. it accounts for only 3% of America's wealth, That doesn't build a billionaire, but middle right. class people and upper class people going on fast fashion hauls, that does.
0: That's a very, very, very good point. Because also too, like affordability is like a myth with fast fashion. I clothing. think it's totally a myth. But like yeah. beyond the quote unquote affordability, people... Are still driven to consume, knowing all the things that we know, we continue to participate. Why Mm. is it we can't quit fast fashion? I think because consumerism is sold to us from like
1: very young ages and it's in all of our media that we like consume. Mm. I did this thing once where I left my house in London and I counted how many different ads I saw. I basically forgot about it once I hit 150 ads. We don't realize how much consumerism is entrenched in our society, but also not just that, but in like films. I always talk about movie makeover scenes as being like the pillar of consumerism because like all these cult movies that are sold particularly to like women, they always involve a makeover scene, right? Where like the main character who everybody treats like shit goes shopping, gets a bunch of clothing, might get a haircut as well, generally, and then yeah. everyone starts treating them differently. We internalize that. And I know we think that we don't, but we do. We do. And that's why our solution to everything is shopping, you know?
0: Yeah. It's speaking more about like the emotional impact of shopping, the emotional impact of clothing. For many people, it could be an emotional experience just to find something that fits. Absolutely. You know, like plus size people are particularly underserved by the overwhelming majority of the fashion industry. And often, in my experience, fast fashion brands carry a wider size range than most other retailers sometimes. They did not for so
1: many years. And they are the people that have the tools and the resources. If you can overproduce billions of garments a year, you mean to tell me you can't just make (laughs) six additional sizes, but you can incinerate a million size eights. Are you Mm. kidding me? So like Mm. they are actually the people who should have been doing it because they have the resources to overproduce millions of garments. So why not just do some bigger sizes if you know what I mean? But one of the things that I've been pushing as a fellow plus size person, I push every brand that is ethical and sustainable who reaches out to me to extend their sizes. Every brand. If you get in my inbox, you know you're, if you are not, And sometimes brands will reach out to me and I'm like, yo, you know, you don't make my size, right? And they're like, embarrassing. And I'm like, fix it, fix it now. So that is like unpaid labor, but it's worth it because if we want everyone to be able to join the movement, you got to be able to dress everyone. That's the reality of it. And so Mm. I'm really proud of like, I can name 20 brands off the top of my head that I have Had these conversations with and have seen them extend their sizes because I find small brands do have a harder time with it. It's a lot harder when you Mm -hmm. don't have the same amount of money and resources, but they're doing it and it's happening. And that makes me really happy. Like, if I have any legacy in any of this, pushing people to be more inclusive as we build a fashion industry that we can all feel really proud of, I want that to be a part
0: of my legacy. That's so beautiful. It's such a great way to put that. So, We've laid out the damage. Yes. <laughs> like just how dire things are. And also yeah. addressed some of the emotional, like stresses and concerns that can come up with regard to like what makes us feel like we need to consistently be shopping. And
1: well, and I think we don't do that enough, like thinking about what's behind what we buy. One of the conversations that I have that always goes over well is I talk about like childhood trauma because. I grew up lower middle class in a very affluent area, which meant that I went to school with a lot of snobs and I wasn't invited to a lot of people's birthday parties. And I wasn't treated very nicely by a lot of my peers. I also went to a very white school and there were not a lot of black kids there. Mm. So I grew up feeling pretty left out of shit. And sometimes I thought that if I had that t-shirt from the Gap where everyone was shopping at that time then maybe they would be nicer to me. Mm. Or if I had a sweatshirt from the limited, then maybe they would let me sit at their lunch table. And that sort of thinking made me the perfect fast fashion consumer. Then I had to sort of sit with myself as a adult at a big old age and be like, who is going to make fun of you if you wear that dress two days in a row? Who? Mm. Who? No one. No. And being able to interrogate that freed me so much. The more we can interrogate that, the happier we're going to be. And the
0: happier our wallets and bank accounts will be as well. That's such a good point. And so many people feel that. I felt that. Yeah. What is outside of fast fashion? I've seen people use the term slow fashion, but even still, like yes. that feels very nebulous.
1: I would say the first thing I would tell people to do is Stop buying so much. You're probably buying too much clothing. And when Mm. you are also participating in the micro trend cycle, you never actually figure out what your style is because your style is being dictated by that trend cycle. Mm. The next thing I tell people, figure out your personal style. Because when you actually get to a point where you have figured out your personal style and you feel really happy about it, you can walk Mm. into a store that is chock-a-block full of crap, look around and go there is nothing for me here. That's a mm. great way to
0: save money. <laughs> when you think about like the intentionality with which you have to th- not even, it's not even just like shopping intentionally. It's just like, cause it, it cause it goes beyond shopping. Like as you mentioned, n- not shopping, but also caring for your clothes. I still have some of the fast fashion things that I had back when I was younger. Yeah. It was much better quality then it was better quality. But like when you think about like not shopping as much, and then mm-hmm. when you're not shopping, you're having to examine your emotions around shopping. And then when you do need something, you have to do research and figure out what's the most ethical or sustainable way that you can obtain the thing that you need, whether that's resale. All of that, it's a lot less effort to do that than to be... Someone who is making these garments for fifteen cents, true that a day or however many hours. It's that. it's a lot easier to do that than it is to cre- like do garment work, underpaid yeah. garment work, and create all of these things and yeah. still not be able to. Do any, you know, do so many things. Work that your are, way
1: out of poverty, which every fast fashion brand claims that they're doing for workers in the global south. Exactly. But nobody is working their way out of poverty.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a lot easier to examine your overconsumption, consume less, and to try to learn new systems for how to get the things that you need. These are all things that we can do. And and here's another thing. I didn't start
1: shopping the way I shop today. Uh, three years ago, four years ago, I've actually been shopping this way all along. So like, if there is an item that I like from a brand that does not have the best reputation, mm-hmm. you know where I go to look for it? eBay. Because all of these brands overproduce everything they make. The last three pairs of jeans I've bought. So like, plus size jeans, Jeans not super abundant. Oh my God. I've been doing that since the early 2000s when everybody was wearing all the designer denim. That was how I figured out that all of these brands overproduce everything. I've been shopping this way all along as a way of participating and buying the things that I really want that Mm -hmm. maybe I couldn't afford. There are so many ways to interact with the system that doesn't look like $300 dresses. And that's Mm -hmm. why it annoys me that that is the assumption. But I know that people are doing that assuming because they don't really want to change what they're <laughs> doing. They just want to find a reason to be like, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Beyond curbing our consumption, where are other things that we can do to create change?
1: I'm a big believer in supporting good brands that are doing good things. When you buy from a small and ethical business, what you need to understand is your money is going so much farther than a big box store, right? Mm. Like the the, mm. the knitwear maker that I buy my big chunky sweaters from in Berlin, she is Polish and she is employing Polish women. And when women are empowered, we do amazing things. And there's True. a lot of women within the system, because 80% of garment workers are women, but mm. the majority of them are being exploited. But what if we could support companies that are not exploiting women and right. giving women good wages so that they can do really cool things within their life and support their community? That has a trickle-down effect. Trickle-down wealth for rich people doesn't work, but mm. actually supporting the world's most marginalized is going to better all sorts of communities. And if you're not sure about a brand, send them a polite email and be like, hey, you know, I'm really trying to get better about like shopping more ethically. So I just want to check, you know, the people at Maker Clothing, are they being paid above living wage? And like, can you tell me a little bit more about your brand? Many small business owners are so happy to like tell you quite easily Mm -hmm. that like everyone within their supply chain is paid above a living wage. I do a collaboration with my friend, Laura. I can tell you the women that make our dresses. I can tell you who makes our knitwear. And I can tell you that their cut of the clothing that we produce together is bigger than my own. And that's how it should be.
0: And that's also why I'm not a billionaire. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Aja, this has been incredible. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. And it's so nice to talk with you, learning from you for so long. Where can people find you and find your work and your book? So I'm on
1: Instagram, instagram.com slash Aja I don't do a ton of ads. I've had none this year. And so I write there for free and, you know, when I can be there. And so my work is actually supported through Patreon, patreon.com slash Aja mm. If you've really enjoyed this conversation and you want me to ruin your urge to go and buy things, <laughs> I do that Monday through Friday. What I do is I share a lot of information that you should know so that you can be a better informed citizen. And also when you read this stuff constantly, it really, really discourages you from buying things you don't need. <laughs> and so that's that's how my work is supported. I also obviously have a book called Consumed. If you pick that up. And you enjoy it, share it with a friend, you know. Request it from your library. I love a library, you know. So if your library doesn't have it, ask for it. Well, wonderful. Thank you for having
0: me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. (laughs)
1: For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hom. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram, at For Colored Nerds, on
0: Twitter, at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere, at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too we love it also when we're like yo my homie cousin best friend told me to listen to this episode and it was bomb and then i subscribed that's like my favorite song so please do your do your friend do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was